And uh, while I got your attention, I just want to give a couple announcements. You're going to hear about this later, but today is the last day to sign up for the marriage conference. Uh, if you are on the fence debating, uh, there's already 37 couples that are registered for it. So it's this Friday night from 5.30 to 9 and then all day Saturday. Uh, but we would love for you to come. Uh, if you're ma married, engaged, would love for you to come and just see it as a little bit of an investment in your marriage. The last couple years have not been the easiest, I've been told, uh, in life. And generally, like when we're bound up and stressed, the worst of it tends to come out sideways on those that we're closest to. And so if your marriage just maybe needs a little bit of vitamins, this would be a great, great, great thing to check out. If, you're, if your marriage is on life support and really struggling, this would be a great place to start and to start moving back toward one another. If your marriage is in a great spot, this is a great place to just hang out with some people, have some fun, and invest in your marriage over the long haul. Also, if you are brand new or, or new in the last few months, uh, once a month we do something called Pizza with the Pastor. It's basically, if you're new and want to find out about Rock Hill and figure out how to get connected here, that's the place to start. So that's today. Uh, after the second service over at the office, if you would like to come to that, just zip me an email or Pastor Paul an email, let us know you're coming, or just show up, we'll make it work, okay? Would love for you to not just come, but figure out how to get connected at Rock Hill, or, you know, if this isn't the place for you, that's okay too. Uh, we would love for it to be, but just, we're not trying to sell you anything, we're just trying to answer the questions. Uh, the last thing we want you to the last thing we want to happen in your life is for you to get two years in and be like, I didn't know you guys believed that. I didn't know you guys were about that. Now that you're already relationally connected, and that's really painful then, isn't it? So we're not trying to sell you anything. We're just trying to let you know who we are, where we're headed, and how you can best get connected. Sound good? All right, infomercial done. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, for the book of Judges. Lord, even though it paints a very bleak picture of humanity and the human condition, it teaches us, and it gives us hope of a judge that won't be flawed, that will come one day, and his name is Jesus. I pray, God, that everything that I do this morning would point us toward him, help us to stand in awe of him, and to look to him for our deliverance and our salvation. And so, God, awaken faith in all of us this morning, everybody in this room, everybody listening online. God, would you speak to every single person through me or in spite of me, but speak. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you found yourself wondering, why are we going through the Bible preaching one chapter out of each book of the Bible when there are so many current events happening? I mean, we're, we're at the tail end of a global pandemic, like if you're in the Duluth Public Schools tomorrow, praise the Lord, you get to go to school without a mask. First time in two years. Um, there's a war going on, and one of the people invading has nuclear weapons, and that's left many people unsettled, right? Why aren't we talking about Russia and Ukraine? Why would we take time today to look at the book of Judges when there's all kinds of craziness going on in our world that affects us every day? Well, here's the thing. The story of the Bible is the story of God working in human history. It's a story that tells us who we are and who he is 
And it's the story that should help us to interpret the events of our day to day. Not in a weird, is this fulfilling prophecy kind of way, but giving us a framework for who God is and who we are and how he relates to his people and how he is sovereign over human history and always has been. And he's working human history toward a dramatic climax in which he will return and make all things new. See, it's a story about how God uses incredibly flawed people to accomplish his purposes. And we see that incredibly clearly in the book of Judges today. It's perhaps the darkest period of Israel's history as a nation. Here's a quick video that gives you an overview of the book of Judges. The book of Judges was most likely written by the prophet Samuel between 1045 and 1000 BC, chronicling the 480 year span following Israel's conquest of Canaan. After the death of Joshua and those that served alongside him, the Israelites were settled in Canaan. But some Canaanites remained in the land and the Israelites began to adopt their corrupt religious practices. Despite being called by God to be a holy people set apart for his glory, they chose to embrace the culture around them by worshiping idols, sacrificing their own children, murdering their fellow Israelites, and rejecting God's call to be different. By sinning against God, the Israelites are prone to oppression from the Canaanites, which leads them to repent and beg God for deliverance. God responds by raising up judges, or political leaders, from amongst the tribes to bring peace to the conflicts. These judges ranged from pretty good, to okay, to bad, to worse, acting in selfish and ungodly ways, but still being used in God's faithfulness to protect and deliver His people. Seeing how the nation of Israel lives, it is clear that they've forgotten the character of God and the conditions of His covenant with them. And yet, despite everyone choosing to do what was right in their own eyes, God upholds his covenant with Abraham to deliver his people. All right, here we go. So the book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. And while under Joshua, the Israelites came in and took possession of the land of Canaan, but we're told that they failed to drive out the majority of the Canaanites. They lived in their midst. And so because of that, uh, they would be constantly plagued by turning their head or turning their worship away from Yahweh, the one true God, and, and worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites. So in many ways, rather than being this beacon and shining light as God's chosen people, showing the surrounding nations what God was like, the story of Judges actually tells the sad fall that they become just like Canaan was. Not giving hope and light to a watching world, but becoming just like the world. And it's gross to see. See, chapters 1 and 2, if I were to give you kind of a schematic outline of the book of, uh, of Judges, it, it, would, it, would be, it starts with Joshua's death and the failure. And then chapter 2 introduces this cycle of sin and rebellion that the book of Judges will follow over and over and over again. There's kind of seven things to it if you want to go to the slide. It begins that God's people will fall into sin and idolatry. They take on the corrupt practices of the Canaanites. And so in light of that, God gets angry with them and brings down his judgment upon them in the, in the um, picture of a foreign enemy coming in to invade them and to oppress them. 
And so as the people are oppressed under this foreign enemy, they cry out to God for deliverance. In part, they repent of their sin. And so God raises up a man, a judge, or a woman, we'll see, a judge to provide deliverance and salvation for his people. And as long as that judge is alive, they experience a time of peace and prosperity. But once the judge dies, they fall back into the same cycle of sin again. And they just, it gets repeated over and over and over again. Like wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. There's this cycle. And so chapters 1 and 2 kind of give us an introduction and an overview of the book. Chapters 3 to 16 tell the stories of different judges. There's six of them. Uh, The first three, Othniel and Ehud and Deborah, are, are rather short stories. How they lead many revivals or provide deliverance. But... um, Even though the stories are short, their faithfulness is quite large and the scope of their deliverance is quite big. But then three more stories that get a little bit more ink in the story of Joshua or in the story of Judges, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. And what we see in each of these uh, succeeding judges is kind of this downward spiral. Each judge gets worse and worse and worse, and, e- and the level of deliverance that they provide becomes more narrow in scope, and the faithfulness that they bring becomes less and less. The judges get worse and worse until finally we get to Samson, and he is an absolute train wreck of a man. Now, we don't tell that in the children's stories. We often sanitize a little bit of these bleak, bleak stories. But Samson becomes, in many ways, the anti-hero that's violent and sexually promiscuous and only out for himself. And then in chapters 17 to 21 of the book of Judges, it is perhaps the most disturbing few chapters in all of the Bible. Two really dark stories that don't make it into any of the children's Bibles, thank the Lord. It is R-rated for sure. And what it does is it essentially summarizes what's taking place among the people, not just the leaders. And and there's this key refrain uh, uttered four or five times in the last few chapters. And finally, the book of Judges end with this. And this is really the point of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the big idea of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everybody did whatever they wanted to do. Everyone did what was seen as right in their own eyes. And the picture that it paints for us is not one of blessing and thriving and flourishing among God's people, but a community and a people and a place and a time that none of us would have wanted to live. See, as easy as it is to step away and look at the train wreck that happens when everybody determines right and wrong for themselves, we live in a day very much the same, don't we? Where rather than a vice, it's actually seen as virtuous to to find your own way, to be your own person, to not let anybody else tell you what to do or what to think or what to believe, but to figure it out on your own. We're beginning to see many of the same things, that it's an absolute train wreck to live when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Now, to give you a snapshot, maybe take the the lens and zoom it from out out big to to just one of the stories. We're going to look at the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7 and 8. It's a picture of how God uses an incredibly imperfect man, but still uses him for his plans and his purposes Now, Gideon is kind of one of those in-between judges. He's all right, 
but he's not great. He's kind of starting the downward cycle. But even in the midst of that, there's some virtuous things, and God does some incredible things. Now, I'm not going to be able to read all three chapters, but we'll just kind of track the story, and at the end, we'll just draw some principles of how we can apply it today. Does that sound good? So let's start. Judges chapter 6, we'll look at the first six verses, and it'll set the context. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would camp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And so Midian has no desire to rule the people of God politically, but economically, they're going to pillage and and, and strip them bare. They keep raiding and taking everything as soon as the crops are ready to be harvested, as soon as the livestock kind of hit their maturity, they swoop in and take it. And so Israel is, is withering under this. They're doing all the work and not experiencing any of the fruit of their labor. And so they cry out to God, Yahweh, for deliverance. And then he does something that he hasn't done yet in the book of Judges. He sends a prophet to them to remind them of the covenant they made with God and their failure to keep it. It is the first time in the book of Judges that a judge is not immediately raised up, but rather a prophet is sent to speak a message to the people, which makes you kind of wonder as the reader, is this it? Is God done with them? Is this one step too far? Is God finally going to abandon his people and leave them to their sin, their debauchery? Is God going to say, I've already raised up three judges for you, and you keep going back and going back like a dog returning to its vomit? No, not at all. God does raise up a prophet, and he confronts them, and he says, you need to deal with the sin that is in your life. But we also see then that God is long-suffering with his people His steadfast covenantal love continues even though they don't deserve any of it. And God raises up a man named Gideon, an unlikely and fearful man that becomes for the people of God a mighty man of valor and the deliverer of God's people. So let's read Gideon's story starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, or Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazim, Abizenrite, whose son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, if you dig into the story of Gideon, you will see that it is literarily brilliant. It it uses irony and twists and turns and humor to show that God is doing something with a guy who's not all that impressive. How do we know? Well, we know that Gideon's a farmer and he is threshing out grain. That means separating the the husk or the chaff from from the seed or the grain. 
It's kind of like throwing it up in the air and letting the wind carry off the chaff. We, we see about chaff in, in Psalm 1 that it's worse than worthless. It just kind of floats away as you throw it up in the air and, and, and beat it and thresh it out. But what you don't notice unless you're reading with, with, a, with a careful eye is where, is where is Gideon doing this? We're told that he's doing it in the bottom of a wine press. That's noteworthy, isn't it? Why would you thresh out grain which uses the wind to carry off the husks in the bottom of a pit? It's because you're scared. You don't want the Midianites to come and take the grain that you've worked so hard to, to plant and harvest and, and now thresh out. You, you want to hide from them. And so here is this man in, in the bottom of this pit doing this, this labor-intensive work in a very inconvenient way because he doesn't want to lose it and he's scared. And in light of that, God, the angel of the Lord, how does he address him? Oh, mighty man of valor. Do you see the irony there? Do you see the humor Scared little man in the bottom of the wine press. Oh, mighty man of valor. Let me ask, if you needed to pick your champion to lead God's people in this great military victory, how many of us would say, I want that guy? Bottom of the wine press. He's, that's it. That's what it means when it says it uses irony, right? Gideon responds to the angel of the Lord with a question, a question that many of us have had. And Gideon said to him, verse 13, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Gideon asks, like many of us ask, God, why is all this bad stuff happening? If you were real, like we've heard the stories that you are real, we wouldn't be suffering like this. Now, the circumstances of his life and our life are different, but the question often is exactly the same, isn't it? When we hit a rough patch, God, where are you? God, are you real? God, if you were real, why would you allow this to be happening to me? Now, there's a lot of things that are going to go on in the next couple chapters, but one of them is that Gideon is going to be forced to grow up in his faith and his understanding of God. He's not going to have such a simplistic understanding. And here's the thing. Throughout life and often through sufferings, we have to grow up as well, don't we? And realize that it doesn't just work like that, that often God brings us through trials and uses hard things in our life to bring about his purposes and our transformation. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Now, nothing's happened other than he's called out to him. He's said, he's called him a mighty man of valor, but he's still in the bottom of the wine pit. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. At least he's self-aware, right? And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you returns. And then the next 10 verses or so, Gideon goes and prepares a, a meal to offer as a sacrifice to the angel of the Lord. 
he, he bakes some cakes and he brings some meat and he pours broth over all of this on a rock. It's kind of a weird symbolic thing that is culturally distant from us, but this is an act of worship that Gideon is doing. And the angel of the Lord reaches out with the tip of his staff and touches it and incinerates it immediately. And then as, as it goes up in flames, the angel of the Lord disappears and Gideon concludes, I guess that really was an angel. I guess that really was God. And as he puts all of these things together, he marvels that he has seen the angel of the Lord and yet not died, even though he's seen him. And then God speaks after the angel disappears. Verse 23, the Lord said to him, peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abazinites. I didn't even fool you on that one, did I? You're like, you don't know how to pronounce this, Pastor Kyle. No, I don't. I've tried like four or five or six times, man. I blow it every time. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down." So God says, don't fear, you're not going to die. And then he instructs Gideon to offer another sacrifice to him. But to do this, he must tear down his father's altar to Baal and the Asherah pole there and use the wood of the Asherah pole to burn the sacrifice to the Lord. Now Gideon, being a mighty man of valor that he is, decides to do this in the middle of the night because he's scared. Again, we're, we're to see the irony of who God uses for this great deliverance. Gideon obeys, and when everybody wakes up and finds this altar of Baal and Asherah torn down and these other altars and a sacrifice being offered, they're angry, and they want to kill him. But Gideon's dad convinces everyone that if Baal is really a, 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 a true God, he can defend himself just fine. So leave his son alone. So they end up leaving Gideon alone, but they give him a new name, Jerubal, which means the one who contends with Baal. So he kind of gets out of this unscathed other than he gets a new weird name, okay? One who contends with Baal. Now before we move on, I just want to look at the spiritual condition of the people and reflect a little bit on it. Gideon obviously knows about God. He knows about Yahweh, the God of Israel. He has heard the stories of Moses and the people's deliverance from Egypt. That's why he says, God, where are you? If you've done all of these things, why are we suffering the way that we are? And yet, even though his father and the community has obviously told him about Yahweh and the worship of God, why then does his father have an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole right next to it? These Canaanite deities... See, the people of God hadn't utterly rejected the worship of God. They simply added to it. They mixed in a few Canaanite deities, the god of weather and fertility, and his adjoining consort, the Asherah, the goddess of sexuality and fertility. 
And so in their minds, it's not that they've wholeheartedly rejected Yahweh as God. They just want a few other things as well. They want to make sure that their prosperity and peace is, is seen to, their safety and security and food. They want to make sure that they get their sexuality and fertility along with all of these things. And so they dabble with these other gods to make sure that they get what they really want, even as they profess faith in Yahweh. Now, before we're so quick to condemn them as little people bowing down to idols of stone and wood, this is often how idolatry works in our heart as well, doesn't it? Most of us don't fashion little statues and bow down to them, hoping that they give us what we want. Similarly, we don't outright reject the worship of God. It's just we often make him secondary to what we really desire, don't we? The Bible calls that an idol. We acknowledge him as Lord, but then we look to things like prosperity and sustenance and security and pleasure and sexuality and children and legacy as the things that actually make us happy, as the things that we actually want. Now, I just want to highlight that the names of the God have changed, but the core idols of the human heart are the same as they were back then. And they plague us just as much. We're just far more subtle about it today. We're more refined in how we pursue them, aren't we? Now, before God works on their behalf, he wants to address this broken spiritual condition in their midst. And so he has Gideon tear down these altar. And then his spirit comes and rests on Gideon. And he calls an army to himself. We read in verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So it's going to happen again. The raiding party has been assembled. It's going to overwhelm Israel and any little resistance they could put up. So this is normally the time when the people of God scatter into the hills where they run to their little uh, embankments and they let the Midianites take whatever they want and hope they leave them alone. 34, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizanrites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers through all Manasseh and they too called out to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. So four tribes of the nation of Israel are being gathered and called to, to arms and they went up to meet him. God's spirit rests on Gideon. And the way that God's spirit works in the Old Testament is different than in the New Testament. It would rest on an individual and it would empower him or, or, or prop him up or her up to do something significant for a time. But it would come and it would go. Unlike the Holy Spirit that comes when he opens our eyes to the beauty and wonder of Jesus and dwells in us from not just at the beginning but for all time. And never leaves us or forsakes us. It's different in the Old Testament. We see that God empowers Gideon and a whole army comes to him. But then, after all of this happens, as the army's been assembled, as he's obeyed the Lord, Gideon begins to get cold feet. He begins to doubt and he comes to God and he asks him for an interesting request. And this is, for some reason, this is what makes it in all the kids' Bibles. Right? This is something that we are like, oh, we turn this into a, a way of discerning the, the will of God in our own lives. But as we'll see, that maybe is not actually why it's written. 
Uh, Verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to the Lord, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. Now, how many of you guys have ever been taught, if you don't know what what God is leading you to do, to put out a fleece and see what he does? Anybody? I have, right? Well, you know, God is gracious, and maybe he'll answer. Like, he'll make the fleece wet or dry, however you ask him. You, we kind of put these little tests in front of God, and we're like, God, I'll do that if this, right? And this is often used as an example of, see how gracious God was with Gideon's life? And yet, in light of all that God had done up to this point, do you really think that the author of Judges is using this story as a positive example of faith and confirmation? I mean, not at all. Not at all. God has already sent his angel to appear to him. He has consumed with fire the offering that Gideon has, has offered, like incinerated it in his very eyes, and then disappeared. And then God audibly spoke to him. And after all of this, and, and then God's spirit rests on him so that 32,000 people come out to fight. And after all of this, Gideon still doesn't believe. It's crazy. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, God is incredibly gracious toward Gideon, isn't he? I I say this so that you don't use this as a model to follow to discover what God's God's will is. Gideon already knew what God's will was. God had already told him. He just needed to do it. He needed to not live in fear and begin to act in faith. And you know what I found for a lot of us? God has already told us what he wants of us. Some of us seek after special revelation. God, do you want me to go here? Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to take this job or this job? Do you want me to buy this car or this car? Do you want me to go to this college or this college? And here's the thing. Those are very real questions. And we want to do the right thing. But many of us want God to answer that when we are largely ignoring all of his other revealed will to us of the kind of people that we're to be, of the quality of faith that we're to have, of the consuming passion of what our life is supposed to be. It's like we want to skip around that and say, no, God, just give me the answer here. You ever find yourself doing that? I know a lot of us probably do. The good news for us, though, is that even in the midst of that, God is gracious, and he answers Gideon's fear. What happens in chapter 7 is one of the coolest stories in the Bible. Gideon is able to gather 32,000 men to fight the invading Midianites. But this is God's response. Here's the point God makes in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You got too much strength here, Gideon. And the problem is if I use those 32,000 to deliver you, you're going to fool yourselves in thinking it was your victory not mine. And so Gideon, you have too many for the work. So this is how I want you to do it. I want you to go to the people, step one, and of these 32,000 men that have been gathered, say, is anybody scared? 
Now, if we look at the number of the Midianites, it says it's 120,000 men. Now, the way that the Bible uses the numbers in the Old Testament, sometimes the word thousand is a very vague term, but we know there's 132 or 120 of them and 32 of the, of the Israelites. The odds are not in their favor. I would have been scared. And 22,000 of the men that have been gathered are like, yeah, I'm scared. He's like, go home. For those who struggle with math, that means there's 10,000 left, right? And God looks out and he says, nope, there's still too many. You're still going to think that it it had something to do with you. I want you to go down to the river, and the ones that kind of scoop up the water and lap it like dogs with their tongues, I'm sure those are the really smart ones, right? Um, those, Those I want you to keep. And at the end of all of this, he, he's like, he's probably thinking, I did a good job. I got 32,000 people to fight this war, and now we got 300. 300. Remember, God is doing this the way that he is doing it in such a way that Gideon and all Israel would know that it isn't their victory, but God's power that sees them through. How would you be feeling if you were Gideon at that point? A little nervous? I mean, you've had all those confirmations, but probably a little nervous. God is again gracious to him and appears. He said, hey, if you're a little scared, I want you and your servant to sneak into the Midianite camp and just listen to what they say. And so we read in verse 13, this is what happens when they sneak in. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Because that is the logical conclusion from a rolling thing of bread, right? (laughs) God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of its dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. Because what else can you do? I mean, right? And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. The story of Gideon is one of fear and fear and fear and fear. And every time he has fear, God meets him in that that space with grace. And he calls him to faith. And he encourages him. And so here's the battle strategy. Each of the 300 men are to go into battle armed with a torch and a clay pot and a trumpet. And at the designated time, they're going to break the pots, start blowing the trumpets and shouting for the Lord and for Gideon. How many of you have been like, awesome, I'm up for that battle strategy. Not even a sword. But they do it. Gideon has found his faith. He does it. And the Midians wake up in this confusion and they start fighting each other. And the Lord wins an unbelievable victory there with 300 men of Gideon defeating an army of 120,000 men. They pursue them and kill a couple of their princes so that now there's only about 15,000 Midianites left and they call out the remainder of the army to come and this 300 is pursuing them. Now this is where the The kid's story usually ends. The sanitized version anyway. And in so many ways, the story would be great if it ended here, wouldn't it? It'd be a happy ending. But like many heroes who often disappoint, the story continues in chapter 8. And we see another side of Gideon that isn't so great. Verse 4. 
And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So they've already won huge battery, but, or, or a huge victory, but there's the remainder of the army. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So he killed the princes, but not the kings. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That sounds nice. And when he went up to Penuel, and they spoke to him in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered as the men of Succoth is answered, he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So he is threatening his own people. So Gideon's tired. These two cities do not help him because they're not certain that he's going to win yet. He's got 300, they got 15,000. They're scared of the Midianites, if you think about it, in much the same way that Gideon was scared of the Midianites two chapters before. But rather than responding to them with grace like God did to him, Gideon makes a threat that he will tear down the tower of Penuel and he will publicly scourge and, and, and berate the leaders of Succoth with briars and thorns. Nice guy, right? And he goes and he does just that. He defeats the Midianite army and comes back and exacts his revenge on these cities by doing this, he captures a kid from Succoth, gets a list of the names of all the elders and leaders of the city, and then does just what he said he would do. He brings them out and he scourges them with briars and thorns. He tortures them as an act of revenge because of a personal slight and offense. And then he goes and tears down the tower of Penuel, the thing that defended that city. And then after that, he kills the two Midianite kings. What a great guy, right? What happens next is fascinating. Remember how everything God did, he did so that Gideon wouldn't take the credit for the victory, right? Everything about the battle plan was clear. But what happens next in chapter 8 is that Gideon takes credit for the victory and begins acting like a king. Gideon's anger at Succoth and Penuel show that despite the words he speaks in deference to God, he expects to be given glory for this victory. God responds to his doubt and his fear with grace and reassurance, but he responds to these cities with personal slight and graceless vengeance. The people of Succoth and Penuel's um, fear becomes a personal slight to him, so that when he has the power, he fights back, he strikes back ruthlessly. When he catches the two kings of Midian, Zalman, or Zalmua and, and Zaman, and hears that they killed his family. He seeks to, to mete out a particularly brutal and personal sense of justice and vindication on his part. Gideon seeks not only in the story to defeat them, but to humiliate them by having a, a young boy execute them, which was seen as a, a great act of shame, that a little boy would be your downfall. And Gideon picks his own son to do this. And the kings rightly call his bluff, and so Gideon ends up killing them himself. So when the battle is over and Gideon has meted out this peculiar form of justice, the people gather together and they come up with an idea in verse 22. Then the men of, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. What are they asking Midian to become? Or what are they asking Gideon to become? King, right? 
rule over us, and then your line will rule over us. Your sons and your grandsons will rule over us. What do we know about God and what he's instructed the people? Are they to have a king? No, God is to be their king. He is to rule and reign over them, and they are to obey him. He is the one that's to deliver them and to to execute justice for them. They are to obey his law. And so this act is actually a rejection of what God has already told them. Now Gideon, on the surface, responds in the right way. We read, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So we're like, oh, dodged a bullet there. Now, on the surface, we're like, well, what's the problem? He, he gave the right answer. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. They offer to make him king. He declines and reminds them that God is their king. But this is actually the last time in the story that Gideon acknowledges God's rightful place to rule over and deliver the people. From this point on, we've seen it already shaded in his revenge and his weird justice. Everything Gideon does from this point on shows that even though he denies the kingship, he's going to act like a king over them. What do you mean? Well, look, as the story goes on, Gideon takes gold from the people. Almost like a king would receive taxes and collect. And and out of the gold, the 1,700 shekels of of gold, he makes a a golden ephod, we're told. Now, the way that he makes it makes it seem a lot like the, the golden calf in the book of Exodus, doesn't it, if you read the story? What is an ephod? An ephod was something that the high priest was to wear. And he takes this ephod and he sets it up in his hometown of Ophrah. Meanwhile, the actual temple and tabernacle, the place that the people were to go to meet with God, was in the town of Shiloh at this time. It's almost as if Gideon is setting up an alternative place of seeking the Lord and worshiping him that's centered on him rather than what God has said. Verse 27 tells us that it causes Israel to be led astray and to whore after other gods. Israel whored thereafter it and became a snare to Gideon and his family, we read in verse 27. Not only that, but we see that Gideon begins accumulating wives and concubines to the point where he has 70 sons. This was very much in line with the behavior of kings in their day. If they wanted something, they would take it. And he did just that. It goes even further hidden kind of in the, in the meaning of the names. Uh, it tells the story of one of his illegitimate sons born to his concubine, not his wife. That means kind of more of a, like a sexual slave or someone that was there for his gratification, but not actually his wife. She has a son. She's from the city of Succoth. And, and do you know what they name him? Abimelech. Does anybody know what the name Abimelech means? The name Abimelech means, my father is king. Subtle, huh? So all this leads to the reality that what Gideon rejected in name of actually becoming a king, because he knew it was wrong, he pursues in all of the practical and tangible ways. He lives like a king and rules like a king. I found Tim Keller's commentary on Judges really insightful in this. He said, how could Gideon refuse to become king because he knows God is the king and then act like one? Quite simply... He knew something intellectually which, he had not, which had not really gripped his heart. He had a mental grasp of the doctrine of God's grace and rule, and he could give the right answer in some situations, but his heart had not really understood how this truth worked itself out in all of life. There was a huge and growing gap between what he believed about God in his head and the motives of his heart and the actions of his hands. 
Gideon's mistake was a failure to live out what he knew to be true. What Paul in Galatians 2.14 called a failure to live literally, walk in line with the gospel. Is this not the same thing that many of us deal with today? We believe in our minds that something is true, but we live like it's not true. We call Jesus Lord, yet we think we're the ones calling the shots. We know the stories of God and claim to worship God, and yet often our satisfaction rests in a multitude of cleverly disguised idols that need to be continually torn down. One of the things that I often talk about is that the Christian life is, is closing the gap between our confessional faith and our functional faith. Our confessional faith is the, is the part of our mind that says, yes, I believe that to be true. Our functional faith is, the, is the, the, the whole of our life that actually lives like it's true, that makes decisions and trusts in the truthfulness or the goodness of what we affirm and lives like it's true. Case in point, many people say, God loves me, but do not live in any way as if you actually feel God's love. Or others, I am trusting in Jesus to save me, and yet everything about how you relate to God is based on your performance. You think God is impressed with your little quiet times so that he should answer you affirmative whatever you want because you've been good. Or maybe you say that God is in control, but then you're constantly anxious and fretting trying to hold control of the world yourself. Guys, I don't say this to condemn. This is the Christian life. All of us battle with many of these things. And the, and the the Christian life is in many ways the fight to close the gap between what I affirm to be true and living in light of it. Jonathan Edwards talked about the kind of knowing of these doctrines being the difference between describing the, the properties of honey, telling someone why it's sweet and why it's, it's good versus having the taste of honey on your tongue. One is experiential and, and, and profoundly transforming. The other is intellectual. See, despite all of this foolishness on Gideon's part, God was gracious to his people. And we're told in verse 28, the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. But then when he dies, all hell breaks loose. Abimelech, this illegitimate son whose name is my father as king, convinces the city of Succoth, his mom's hometown, to, bring, to, to back him. And he hires a bunch of thugs and kills all 70 of his brothers so that he can reign as king over them. It doesn't end well for Abimelech. You can read that beautiful story uh, in chapter 9. But we won't go there today. And so on and on, what we see is there's temporary relief and salvation, but the cycle goes downward and downward and downward like the rest of the book of Judges. So what do we learn from this story? What do we apply? We've applied some things. Let me highlight four things or realities. In Gideon's story, we see that God is gracious. His story shows that God constantly uses flawed and imperfect people to do mighty things for him. Gideon is an ironic character, isn't he? Looking at his life causes us to long for the true and perfect deliverer, one that won't fail where Gideon has. One that's not given to petty offense or revenge, who would deliver us from an actual enemy that would otherwise overwhelm us. And yet in all of this, it's interesting that if you turn in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, whose name do we find there? 
Gideons and Jephthahs and Samson, who are even worse. What do we make of this? I think at the very least it's this. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you, but you do have to believe him. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you, but you do have to believe him. Many of you believe the lie that God could never use you. You're too messed up. And that's not true. It's a lie. The Bible is filled with imperfect people that God uses and moves his plans and purposes forward. Now, often their life is a mixed bag, which causes us to never worship them or idolize them, but to look to the one that they point to, which is Jesus. But it should encourage us that we don't have to be perfect for God to use us. And so my, my charge to you is step out in faith. What is God asking you to do? Take one step toward that today and see what God does. Maybe it's inviting your friend to church. Hey, come and learn the Bible with me. We're going through this thread series. It's kind of interesting. I bet you would enjoy it. Maybe it's an act of kindness to demonstrate to someone in your life that you actually care for them. You're not just preaching at them. Take that step. Second, we learn that God will not share his glory. Yes, he uses us, but his desire is to be glorified not to glorify us. See, everything about the battle plan was to show that this was God's victory, not Gideon's, but everything about Gideon's life after the fact showed that he didn't get that at all. What about you? Perhaps God is taking away what you have built up to show you that all the work that he is going to do is his work, not your cleverness. It is his power, not your brilliance. There's a lot of religious leaders and sociologists that are just banging their heads against a wall because the reality of post-pandemic, most churches are 30, 40, 50, even 60% down from where they were. People are wondering, have people abandoned God? Is everybody going to deconstruct their faith and say, I want nothing to do with the church? This is a little bit of a stretch, but... What if God is doing something so that whatever he does next, none of us would take the credit for it? What if God is refining his church, calling his faithful, calling them back to himself, and then he's going to unleash us in a way that, frankly, we can't take the credit for. We can't write books about how awesome we are. We can't say, look at me, look at me. We must say, look at God. Look at what he did. God will not share his glory. I believe God is wanting to do something. We already know he uses imperfect people. Why not be part? Third, it's entirely possible to deny with our mouths what we say with our lives. Gideon said with his mouth that he was not the king, but then acted like he was. His family claimed to worship Yahweh and yet had altars and idols to false gods. Hypocrisy is always easier to see in other people than it is in our own life, isn't it? In, in what ways might our lives be denying the very gospel that we preach? In what ways might our lives be out of step or out of line with the truth of the gospel? What if you discover something? If you discover something, then do what every Christian does. Repent and believe. 
Turn from it. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge that you are not righteous in your own, si- in your own eyes. And trust that Jesus is. And then live like he is. And go the other way. There's always going to be a gap, I think, between our desire for what we are and what we are. But the difference between hypocrites and non-hypocrites is that hypocrites don't acknowledge it. They continue living and, and pretending that everything's fine, even though everything's true. Christians see, acknowledge, repent, and bring their life in line with what they say they believe. Let's close that gap. Finally, when we live out, the fourth thing we learn just in general, when we live out the theme of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it doesn't go well. We often think that the greatest freedom is to be totally and completely in control of our own lives, to be our own kings and queens. Take it from the book of Judges, that doesn't work so well. But Jesus comes along and he says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When God commands us to do something, it is so that we would find life. What Jesus invites us into is not a life of drudgery or no fun, something that we must escape from. He invites us into abundant life or life that we were created to live. And this life is found under his rule and reign. We don't do that. We need someone to come and deliver us to that life. And whereas all of the people and all of the judges in the book of Judges fall short and fail, Jesus doesn't. He comes and he provides salvation and he transforms our heart and he pours out his spirit not just on one person but on all who call on the name of Jesus. That is good news, my friends. Next week, we're going to look at the book of Ruth. Now, how many of you guys have been trying to track along with the reading as we, as we go through? Yeah, a few of you? Awesome. I've heard, I've heard from a number of you. I have good news for you in two ways. Ruth is next week. It's four chapters. So if you need to catch up, don't worry about it. In fact, just start with Ruth and read the book of Ruth this week and know this. The book of Ruth, in all of its beautiful redemption, happens during this time of the judges. And we learned that even in the bleakest of times, God's still at work. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us and lays bare our heart. I pray, God, that we would worship you in all your glory and splendor. God, meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.